So the, the filibustering begin. I rise today to begin to filibuster. I will speak until I can no longer speak. I will speak as long as it takes. I'm prepared to stand on this floor and talk about the need for this body to come together for frankly as long as I can because I know that we can come together on this issue. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records or to, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better. Now let me just enumerate some of the reasons. We're engaged in a filibuster, a way to divert attention from what we're doing today, to obstruct, and that's what's going on today. Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the lead faculty for the history programs in Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. To my, I don't know, west on the map, <laughs> to my to my left, I don't know, is uh, James Fennessy from, uh, calling in from San Francisco, California. Say hello, James. Hello, James. Good call. And Liz, I, I don't actually know where you are. Where are you? <laughs> I'm in the middle. I'm in Minneapolis. Oh, okay. So you're to my closer west, northwest. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right. Excellent. We have the nation covered. Yes, we have covered the broad expanse of this great nation. So we are talking today with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Spott, who is the technical faculty for social sciences here at Southern New Hampshire University. And we will talk a bit about what that is and what she does all day. So uh, what's your name? What do you do? Uh, Well, my name is Liz Spott. I am, as you said, a technical faculty at SNHU, and that title is newish, I think, to the university because I'm a lead faculty, and I've met several other lead faculties, uh, no other technical faculty members. So my role is essentially the same as other lead faculty, pretty much. I teach one course, and I bounce back and forth between SCS 100, social sciences, and anthropology courses. Aside from that, I mean, it seems like lately I've been involved in a lot of program reviews for HSC. We're working on political science right now. Also reviewing courses as they come in, looking at term over term numbers and uh, success and failure rates and stuff like that. So teaching, but I'm also involved in some uh, program and course evaluation. And that's something over the last couple of years that I've really, well, I've discovered that I've really enjoyed doing. Did not know that before. Oh, great. I mean, yeah, that all seems about par for the course at the administrative level, so (laughs) you're lucky that you enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, I do. That's fantastic. So that gives us an idea of what you do now. Would you mind sharing a little bit with us about your background? So how you you came to be interested in your fields of study, you know, exactly how you went about your education in those areas and experience and how you see, uh, this might be a larger question, but we'll move into this a bit later, how you see your field of study as connected to history and maybe some of the lessons that our history students can take away or interests that they might find in your areas. Oh, sure. Absolutely. My father was a social worker for my whole life and he was working in the county prison here in Minneapolis and then he transferred and worked as a probation officer down in the drug courts in Minneapolis. So I was really exposed to social sciences really early and didn't really know that I enjoyed them so much until I tried to figure out what I wanted to do with my life when I went to college. So I 
enrolled at UW-La Crosse, which is in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and the program was Archaeological Studies. And there aren't a whole lot of programs like this in the country, a dozen or 15. Uh, technically, archaeology is a subfield of anthropology. So anthropology in whole is the study of humans and non-human primates through space and time. It's very, very broad looking at the whole field of anthropology, but you can do this in each of the four subfields. So you can study human and other primate biology in physical anthropology. We have linguistic anthropology that studies language, cultural anthropology that studies modern cultures, and then archaeology, which studies culture in the past, or people that are no longer living and extinct. So I worked in the archaeology lab down in La Crosse, and I loved it. I loved digging in the dirt. I loved being outside in the summer times. There was no office work. It was fascinating. You were, even though the work was in Wisconsin, it's, uh, La Crosse is a very rich and diverse area. People have been living there for hundreds of years, and the natives thousands of years before that. So there's this huge archaeological record, lots of work to be done, and I uh, really got into it there and really loved it. And after my work there, I decided to go on to a master's, because when you're working in archaeology, you become what's called a shovel bum. If you don't have a degree, essentially all you have to do is attend a field school, so you take usually a year or two of college credit, and then you go to a field school where it's a six-week summer course, and you learn how to excavate and learn how to survey. So after doing that, I worked as a shovel bum while I was in school, which isn't too bad. We're employed mainly under Section 106 of the National Pres Historic Preservation Act. Anytime there's uh, federal contracts, federal money going in, where they're building roads or cell towers or oil pipelines, you have to do a survey for archaeological resources because if they're damaged, they're lost forever, and this Historic Preservation Act deemed them important and necessary, which is fortunate. So I've worked, oh gosh, electrical corridors, oil pipelines, highway construction. Uh, at the time, in my 20s, it was fantastic, and I loved it. So I went on to get my master's at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln and worked for the Park Service, the Midwest Archaeological Center. And a slightly different bent, because this time it wasn't a private company. Uh, we call it CRM, Cultural Resource Management. It wasn't a private CRM firm, but it was a federal firm out of the National Park Service office. But a lot of the same things. Whenever the park is proposing work, because they are parks are almost always built in or around places of historic significance where people were living or significant things happened in the past, a lot of surveys are done in parks, whether they're creating more pit toilets, camping areas, expanding trails, or even taking over new portions of land in the park itself. And after that, gosh, I went to work for a change. I worked for a year for a private CRM firm, and uh, that's when I did most of the oil pipeline work. And when you're in your early 20s and a young woman and a lot of the oil pipeline guys are southern older men, it's, it's a hard business when you tell them you're in charge of the crew and discussing the scope of work. I did meet a lot of resistance, but it was also, it wasn't, I can to imagine, me, it wasn't yeah. a huge deal. So you're you're also one of those, uh, you know, pointy-headed intellectuals. <laughs> you yes. don't want to toss around too many generalizations, yeah. but still, I imagine that's probably an aspect to it I also. I was not a good old boy, that's for sure. And for we didn't really work closely with them, but every once in a while our project areas overlap, so you had to deal with people and coordinate who's going to work where, and at least you know, professional courtesy of working near someone on the same project. But it was hard. And um, after doing that for about a year probably only, 
I decided to go back to school, which is kind of what we all do, I guess, in academia, which is where I went to get my doctorate, or when I went to get my doctorate. And the interesting thing about archaeology is that there are very broadly two types, I would say. There's the prehistoric archaeology, where you're dealing with, on this continent, Native American ancestors and people of that nature. And then there's historical archaeology. And this is archaeology done on sites where there is a written record present. So my dissertation site was the house of John Baptiste Richardville, who was the chief of the Miami Indians from, oh gosh, 1814 until his death in 1841. So even though I'm an archaeologist and trained in prehistoric archaeology, uh, my doctoral research was all done on the historic period in the Indian removal. And that's really wow, interesting. That is, <laughs> yeah, that's quite a difference. And I credit that for taking me so long to finish. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're doing historical archaeology, I mean, obviously we all have kind of the, you know, the conception of archaeologists digging through ruins and, you know, brushing off shards of stuff. So yeah. when you're doing historical archaeology, are you also doing documents also, or are you just relying on just the physical part of it, or are you also using like documentary evidence to provide context for it, or are you kind of separating the two? It's a really interesting part of archaeology where you get both. So we're, we're trying to do both. With my dissertation research, there, were, there weren't a whole lot of primary documents I could depend on. So a lot of it was based on the archaeological assemblage recovered at the house that, was, uh, that I was working on. But this whole concept of, or the idea of bias, who kept written records in the 1840s? Right. Pretty much white yeah. men, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't very native, have, very many Native Americans that were doing that. Yeah. Right. And even this this gentleman, Richardville, had the ability to speak in his native Miami language as well as English and French. And he was literate and could write and read in these languages. But you have a very narrow view of the past through the eyes of people who were probably better well off, had a better place in life than other people. Most of the time, we're in control of things. Not, and there are expect, there are exceptions. It's not hands-down rule. But using it was our hope that using the archaeology from the site, we would get to see his wife or the children, people that are often missing from the archaeological or sorry historical accounts, people who are called essentially silent populations or people of little note. And in in our case, there there were a few things. But since Richard Villain's family lived in this house for gosh, what, eight years before he died? The 200-year occupation after that really overshadowed any presence. There were some things tied to him because he owned the house and ran the place and hosted lavish dinner parties. But again, looking for his wife, Natakwa, their children, really didn't see a whole lot, unfortunately. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But I guess that does make sense. If the house was occupied after they left, then, you know, it's just like, a crime scene with 800 people's fingerprints right. on it. What are you going to do? <laughs> it's kind of hard to find the needle in the haystack that's look, that actually answers the question you're asking. Oh, well, and his wife, being a very more traditional Miami woman, didn't live in the... So he built a Greek revival house in 1827. It was the first Greek revival structure in the state, also simultaneously old, oldest Native American structure in the area. So it's this kind of weird conundrum. So, sorry, anyway, being a traditional Miami, she didn't live in the house. She lived in a wiki up on the property somewhere. So again, we're, my advisor excavated the site in 92 and 95, and the units were centered on the house. So if we're looking for the presence of a woman that didn't live in the house, you'd have to look somewhere else. And at the time, his scope of work didn't really, I think maybe they were hoping to find her presence, 
it crossed their minds, but it wasn't the sole purpose of the research. So they did focus their excavations uh, immediately adjacent to the house. This also brings up a, a really interesting connection between between the two disciplines, between history and archaeology, is both access to sources, what types of sources we can actually find and use, how we use those to develop a narrative or an understanding of the past, but also how we're meant to interpret those sources. So um, I just see the two connections as very important because something that a lot of students of history might not realize is that we focus a lot on the use of primary and secondary sources um, in relation to written sources when we're looking at history, especially modern history. But when we look at ancient history, a lot of what we know is based on a wide range of sources, including sources that we find in archaeological digs. So uh, that connection, I think, is really important to emphasize for, mm -hmm. for students of history. Yeah, it's a fascinating little niche field, and I had a great time working in it. Um, I just finished my dissertation, gosh, this last April and graduated in May. So it's still very fresh and kind of painful to think about. <laughs> congratulations. I think it'll pass eventually. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, I finished my dissertation just over seven years ago. And I have uh, just recently, in the last month or so, worked up the nerve to actually reopen the, the file on my oh computer no. to look at it. <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take me to actually want to try to revise it into publication yeah. or anything like that, but I'm, I'm slowly reintroducing myself to it and remembering that there was some good stuff in addition to the horror of trying to finish that thing. Right. Well, in the topics, I was, I was fortunate to come across topics that I was really passionate about. So in the 90s, late 80s into the 90s, there was a big feminist movement in archaeology. And there's a whole slew of literature and some really famous work done. Because like a lot of other fields, it was dominated by men. And in, 19, in the 1970s, you know, the idea was of, you know, man, capital M. Well, it's humans. Obviously, there were women always. And so looking for these people that maybe, you know, man the hunter, well, what did the other half of humans do for hundreds of thousands of years, right? So combining the feminist theory, which is really interesting, with other theories from other disciplines. So one of the things I wanted to look at in my dissertation was identity. You ha uh, In this project, there was Richardville, who wound up being the chief of the tribe and owned this wonderful house. He was actually also the richest person in the state when he died. He was born, his mother was a Miami Indian, his father was French nobility from Canada. You have the mixture of these you know, physical, biological traits, but also cultural traits as well. He lived among the Miami for about 10 years or so, and then went to Canada to live with his father. And he wound up being this combination, this amalgamation of Native Americans and Europeans, and he knew how to live among each of them, even if a lot of the white folks didn't consider him entirely white. He was white enough. He was white enough to host these very lavish dinner parties and become essentially an elite member of their society. So how do you, how do you create that identity? How do any of us create who we are? And what does that look like in the material culture that you produce? So I was fortunate in this project to work with some really interesting topics in cross disciplines and do some, the work wasn't that fun, but do some really interesting work. Right. Yeah, there's a difference between interesting work and fun work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In academia, The whole dissertation was very stressful, but yeah. at least the topics themselves. And it, it's not until I talk to people like you or other people when I was at graduation week, it's new. Everybody gets really excited about it, and I haven't been excited about it personally in quite some time. 
because right. it's a project I have to get done, right? Right. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting phenomenon when you sit and explain dissertation. Actually, since like I spent, you know, what was well, whatever it was, four years or whatever, working with my dissertation is like okay, I'm I just I want to move on to something new, but there is an actual interesting topic there that drew me to it in the first place and it does draw people in when i tell people about it and describe the project to them now they get interested in it and it kind of helps me to remember oh yeah at one time i was pretty psyched about that too and i'm sure i will get excited about it again and i've been i've like i said i've gone back in a few times and i've started to kind of nibble at little things that i that maybe i don't know maybe i'll publish as articles or something which sure parts of basically trying to pick off little pieces of it that seem particularly interesting which will at some point allow me to kind of provide kind of an entryway to forgetting back into the whole project as a whole. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting to deal with it for so long, put it aside, but then kind of get drawn back into it just by describing yeah. it to other people. And I think when I was working in the field in archaeology, so when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student uh, in Lincoln, while I was in school, I would spend the summers in the field and pretty much any spring or fall break we got, there was field work to do. And then when I got to, so I did my, my doctoral work at UW-Milwaukee. So when I got to Milwaukee, I did work for their CRM firm for a while. But I just, I had kind of had enough of that field archaeologist life. Whenever you work in archaeology, it's never at home. Right. If you're lucky, you have an hour car drive to get to wherever you're doing your survey. Hmm. And if the road or oil pipeline or whoever the project is for did their work right, they are not planning to put their thing in the middle of an archaeological site. So if they did it right, you're not going to find anything. <laughs> so I went years yeah. without finding anything, which is good. You know, cultural resources aren't impacted. It doesn't make for a real exciting job. Right. <laughs> really just so a the, lot of paperwork. <laughs> so the big question then is, or I guess the big takeaway is that, one, you've never been chased by a massive boulder, and, two, you've never had a French no. nemesis who tries to steal all of your findings. No, and there aren't Nazis. No Nazis in archaeology. No. I will argue. I mean, not that, that we want Nazis in archaeology, but right. it might make it a little bit more interesting for you fighting them as an archaeologist. I will argue that some things might belong in a museum. But <laughs> museums are constantly running out of space. And besides, who owns the past? Yeah. I found it. So do I own it? It's on somebody's private land. Do they own it? What about if it's a body? If it's if it's a burial, that's a very different story. But if it's just an artifact. What about the people that made it? So you get also into these very ethical issues, and it becomes complicated. And even at the work I've done, again, primarily in the Midwest, you get these national examples of the Elgin marbles. Well, they were recovered at a time where pretty much white people took what they wanted and put it in the British Museum. Well, you know, maybe they don't belong there. Mm -hmm. But they've been there for so long now, it's really hard to say who's going to take them down or how do you give them back at this point and if you start there how would the british museum have a museum almost everything in there is not from britain <laughs> i kind of encountered an issue like this i went on vacation in alaska a, a month or so ago and we went to the net or the state i forget exactly what it's called but it's it's the totem pole Oh yeah. historical society something along those lines i'm drawing a blank what it's actually called but they actually have some plaques up on the wall and some information and all that, which talks about the tricky nature of this, because these totem poles were 
obviously constructed by Native American groups, and then they were dragged pretty much literally (laughs) from those remote areas into this institution for preservation. But it brings up a whole bunch of issues because, you know, who owns it? It also kind of was interesting to me because these totem poles were never meant to be permanent markers. They're meant to rot. (laughs) And so Uh, just by bringing them into these institutions to preserve them, even that is kind of violating the whole point of these things. they They were meant to be... You know, they're part of nature. It's a tree. Mm -hmm. And so you cut down the tree, you decorate it. Eventually, it's going to rot away. But we're not letting them rot away. (laughs) So it does create a lot of potentially thorny, at least kind of intellectually interesting kind of conundrums there about what do you Mm -hmm. do with this type of stuff. Right. And so I did a little bit of that field work when I was earning my doctorate in Milwaukee. But then around 2010, and I don't even, I'm not even sure why. I knew I liked teaching, but I hadn't done a whole lot of it. I got an adjunct teaching job at SNU, and at that time, it was a much different university and a smaller affair, and luckily, they kept me on, and I've been teaching as an adjunct ever since uh, until being hired full-time in in March, and aside from that, also taught in some face-to-face contexts at some universities, and really, starting in 2010, I think, really got into teaching both online and in person, and really enjoyed it in a way that I never had as a younger person. Can you just take a moment to talk about that transition? You know, it might not be anything groundbreaking or, you know, reveal any deeper secret, but just how one goes from working out in the field, doing very tactile job um, where you're engaged in the actual physical research and physical development of archaeology to being a teacher and then do you maintain an existence in both worlds or at some point do you just choose to move fully into teaching? I think that might be an interesting point to discuss. Sure. Even as, so I technically, I think I was a field director. Um, I was a supervisor. But even as a supervisor, we didn't really plan our projects. So we primarily did survey. So if, what is the rule? If the ground, if there's 25% or more of the ground soil surface visible, you can do a pedestrian survey. So if a field has been tilled recently, you can go out there, you can walk, you space your crew members five meters apart, and you walk from one end to the other, just looking for artifacts because the till is really good at at bringing things to the surface. And these things are really distinctive. You'll find glass or ceramics for historic sites, but then you'll also find chipstone tools if it's a prehistoric site, maybe some pottery that usually isn't so obvious on the surface. Otherwise, if the ground surface is not visible, and let's say it's a cow pasture or a horse pasture, you have to dig a hole in the ground about 15 centimeters wide, so maybe a foot wide, and down into the soil change, into the bee horizon. So anywhere from, again, a foot or two, there it's substantial. And then you, you put that soil through a screen. It's a quarter-inch screen, and the soil goes through, and the artifacts stay, if there are any, or maybe just the gravel or the rocks. So even though it was very interesting and a whole lot of fun, it wound up being eight-hour days in the sun digging holes. And again, if you're in your early 20s, and I, I was in pretty good shape. I'm a runner. I've run a marathon. This still, it was, it's a very difficult industry to be in because not only do you have to do these things, hopefully if you're a crew member and you walk fields all day or dig holes, you have a smile on your face at the end because you still have a supervisor and you have to get the project, the parcel, the mileage done. And it can be, again, if you're not finding anything, which is good, um, if they've placed their survey areas properly and they're going to put a highway in a place where there is not a site, that's a good thing. But it makes for a very difficult job. <laughs> I guess everybody likes to find something, 
But as soon as you find a thing, whether it's a projectile point or a piece of pottery, or even if you excavate a whole site, as soon as you find that thing and dig it up, you destroy it and you ruin it because you take it out of its cultural context and you put it somewhere else, whether it's a museum or in a museum collection on a shelf somewhere. That thing, even if it's just an old garbage pit that was part of a village once, somebody stored something in it and then filled it in with garbage the next year, even if it's just a garbage pit, you've destroyed it. Sure, you've drawn pictures of it, you've made a map, you've taken photographs of it, you have a really good record of what was there and where things were found. But at the end of the day, that thing is still gone. And that's part of archaeology. It would be like burning a book from a historic site or a historical document after you've read it. It's gone. And while you did retain a lot of information, that thing is no longer there. This is kind of like the non-scientific version of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle or something where, you know, <laughs> observing an object is changing the object or something. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, getting back to like the Indiana Jones stereotype and all that. Yeah. Running around and tearing things out of old historic sites and running up, <laughs> running from boulders and all that. It creates adventure, but it also does help to kind of destroy the culture and the maybe not the culture but at least the remaining culture of whatever that civilization was and i've had some some very positive experiences in the field my time in lacrosse as an undergraduate as a master's degree student in lincoln working for the park service it was just a couple years after that where one i was getting a little older getting into my late 20s which isn't that old but it's old enough if you're out in the field digging holes all day you, you feel pretty old right. um <laughs> combination of that and then perhaps the scale of work and essentially almost all being done for infrastructure for pipelines and roads and it just after a while didn't appeal to me and it, it was a, it was a hard life and again it's it's not at home you didn't get to live at home often had to go to hotels for 10 days or a week or maybe have the weekends at home and it was it was a difficult lifestyle and as I got into teaching uh, again, for SNU, teaching cultural anthropology, I've perhaps found a new love of anthropology in a different way. And I don't know what history is like, historians. Very few people get a degree in anthropology and become an anthropologist. There are very few jobs out there for an anthropologist. There aren't a lot of them. And I, I'm not, for example, an anthropologist. I'm a technical faculty member. And this is true of almost everyone in the field. You can use anthropology because, again, it's a study of people in a number of different ways. So when I started teaching classes, some of them, let's see, Intro to Cultural Anthropology, but then teaching courses in American and World Ethnography. And then in a very indirect way, I got into the biological sciences because the head of their department was a biological anthropologist. So before he got his graduate degrees in biology, he was an anthropologist. And so he liked to hire from the anthropology department. And so I, I really got to teach a very wide variety of topics, which I found fascinating. And when you think about what culture is and what you're teaching people, or how, even if I'm teaching biology, how I'm applying that knowledge to reach them is something you very much use anthropology all the time. I think that brings up a good point, because when we talk to people with history degrees and we think about where they end up as part of a career, so we can, you know, not everybody becomes a historian and works in academia. Right. So some people might work in museums. Some people might go on to law school. Some people work, you know, within politics or in the government. Some people go into corporations but utilize those liberal arts skills in, in ways to manage people. So when we think about anthropology, other than academia and teaching, can you provide you know a little bit of guidance for people with 
with these degrees uh, sometimes end up? Oh, sure. A friend of mine works for American Family Insurance in Madison, Wisconsin. And even though it's an insurance company, think of all the people an insurance company has to do business with. So how do you market your product? How do you appeal to people? When someone files a claim, how do you know you're being culturally sensitive to them and their needs? Because the way that I think of my house and you think of your house and another family might think of their house, say a rural family up on a Wisconsin farm versus somebody living in the city of Milwaukee, your interactions with them will be different because their culture is different. The way they do things, the way they think, and how they operate is also a little different. And so um, I know her, she was primarily in the claims, how people file claims, helping people in the company understand how to how to interact with people from different cultures or subcultures. Even though we're all American, part of this culture in the United States, I will bet you that James in California, Rob, you're on the East Coast, right? I'm in Ohio. Ohio. Even, even Ohio. I was surprised when I worked in Ohio doing field work. It's the south there, very much, just <laughs> yes. south of Columbus, and I, I had yeah. no idea. And things here in Minnesota, very, very different. So even a company that works within the country, within the confines of our American culture, will have very different experiences with different people. And so more so than becoming anthropologists, I feel like being able to use and apply anthropology. So something, one of the main tenets is cultural relativism. It's this idea that no culture is better or worse than another one, and that you have to examine a culture or consider it or understand it in terms of its own context. So locally, we call soda pop. So someone from California might think that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to understand the word pop and the way it's used within the Minnesota culture rather than judging it against your own culture and saying, oh, well, that's a, that's a stupid word. I don't, I don't know why you guys use that. That was always an ongoing conversation between myself and my British friends, as you both might know, if you know anybody from England, especially somebody who uh, had achieved a certain level of education. The desire to let you know when you as an American are saying something incorrectly because you did not invent the language, is uh, <laughs> it runs deep in, in British culture sometimes. Yes. So I always, multiple conversations, you know, about the way that Americans say things in certain ways, and obviously regional too, which always uh, oh, yeah. fascinated me about England because you could go 30 miles down the road and the accents and sometimes the slang completely changes but there's this idea of a proper way to use the language and mm-hmm. a constant reminder that you are not using it properly so <laughs> I, <laughs> that idea of cultural relativism uh, I think is it's also something important to keep in mind you know not obviously not only for the ridiculous example that I just used but paying attention to current politics and the way that we interact with people around the world one of the most recent examples that I can think of and that happens all the time I somehow ended up watching uh, Tucker Carlson, a segment on his show, and was absolutely disgusted by some of the things that I heard in relation to what he was saying about other cultures. Um, Coming from a a purely American standpoint of this is the only proper way to think about things and do things. So I think that's, you know, we learn a lot of great lessons from anthropology and the study of other people and trying to approach other people on the basis of how they developed and their beliefs rather than based on our own development and beliefs. Right, and not to insert myself into the history department, but it's a lot of the same is true if you read historical texts. 
there is definitely a presentist perspective of the world. And if you read something that James Madison wrote when he was alive, his perspective will be very different. If you take it at face value and judge it by our standards, he was racist and sexist and, you know, probably didn't think really nice things of people who today are given equal rights. And so it's this idea of trying, on, on one hand, to remove your, yourself and your culture from this judgment. And it, it gets complicated because we all have culture. It determines what we do and say in social situations. It somewhat determines our religion. And I say determines, but I should say influences. It influences how we speak to others and whether we shake their hands or give them a hug. Or It, it also then colors the way we see things and it very much changes our perspective or influences our perspective. So if we're at least conscious of that, whether we're reading historical texts or observing a rural culture upstate or something, we can at least then begin to say, oh, well, I think that's strange, so this must be my own culture and my own standards coming through. Okay, what if I forget about that and just look at what they're doing and listen to what they say about it and essentially get a larger more of an insider's perspective of what they're doing. And this can be done at schools, whether they're inner city or rural or suburban. They can be done in churches, companies. How many companies or how many companies have you worked for where people in the cube or desk next to you are not exactly like you? A lot of the time, it's not every time, but very much of the time people from, they have different practices, they have different religions, different ways of doing things. And so this idea of culture and looking at it and cultural relativism and trying to not judge others, I think is applicable even if you go to the grocery store, the pharmacy, almost everywhere, because people out in the world are not exactly like you. I love the connections that we've been able to, to make between history, archaeology, anthropology, and also some of the larger relevant questions that it brings up regarding even our current time and how we interact with others and how we need to stop to think about the experiences of others in relation to ourselves as well. And it is interesting. We've interviewed a couple of people already uh, in earlier episodes who are kind of would be classified as cultural resource managers. And so we've actually heard a bunch of conversations already about, you know, Section 106 of the, was it the NHPA? Oh, right. One of the people we talked to was a compliance officer for the state of Colorado. Oh. And another was, we've talked to two others. Uh, one is kind of self-employed and the other works for a consulting firm uh, that handle the, um, not the environmental impact statements, but the um, the cultural I'm drawing a blank what those are called, but <laughs> the, the Section sure. 106 compliance forms, yeah. whatever they're called, that, that seems to be a fairly common, I mean, again, maybe not numbers-wise, but maybe percentage-wise, but that seems to be kind of a common place for people to go if they've got anthropology backgrounds or public history backgrounds. It is. It, I haven't heard statistics on it lately, but it's roughly 80% of archaeology. People rarely go out and dig things up just to dig it up. One, right. because it... it destroys things. Um, two, is really expensive. And a lot of it's done, in, like I said, in conjunction with construction of various types. And it's a big business. It's yeah. There's a lot. Anywhere people live today, they lived a thousand years ago, for sure. 
Right. I've got a couple of friends that are still in that field. Um, one is an archaeologist for the Forest Service, and so I get to see him posting on Facebook nice. all the exotic yeah. places that he goes to <laughs> in the in the far west, tramping through the woods and all of that. Yes. Uh, which looks amazing, but it also just looks exhausting, especially now that I'm you know I'm in my 40s and it just right. looks like it's exhausting now. A lot of ticks out there too. For sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Ticks, snakes, drug dealers. Those are his stories anyway. <laughs> all things yeah. that you don't stop to consider before <laughs> right. the age of 25 or 30. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. I really enjoyed working in the Midwest. And being from Minnesota, it gets cold enough here. Things are not poisonous. They don't. Yeah. They, there are no poisonous snakes. There are no poisonous spiders. Things don't kill you. In other parts of the country, that is definitely not the case. Right. All right, well, let's move on to the uh, recommendations then. Have you guys thought of things to recommend? The suggestion I made yesterday would have been perfect. So basically, um, there's a recent NPR article about a discovery in Jordan, the discovery of the earliest bread on record, which predates Ah. what we thought about the... um, the agricultural revolution by about 4,000 years. So it's it's leading, you know, there's still some still some analysis to be done, but basically the previous assumption was that um, the development of bread and cultivation of grain started right around 10,000. And then from that, from the point of the cultivation of grains and, and starting to farm, that's where we see the proliferation of like breads and other other wheat products. What this discovery might suggest is that bread was developed before that, that wheat and other grains and tubers were used to develop or to create a bread-like substance prior to that. It might not have been accessible to everyone. It might have been something that was for the more affluent within those hunter and gatherer societies or somebody who might have had more resources uh, or for special occasions, but that it led to a taste for these bread products, which might have promoted cultures to or societies to start becoming more stationary and farming so it it might turn that whole idea on its head which then connects back to what we teach in you know the history of the world up to 1500 so just how that would have been much more relevant to today's conversation than yesterday's interesting just cut it out of yesterday's (laughs) recording (laughs) yeah move it to this one um, all right yeah but yeah if uh if you're interested at all in that um it's uh just go Go to Google, search NPR 14,000-year-old bread, and I'm sure it will come up. (laughs) Yeah. I ran across, it was a a Nova special on Netflix, and I think it's called something like Dawn of Humanity, and it deals in paleoanthropology, which is a little different. These are people who focus on excavating fossil hominids, so the very precursors to humans. So like Lucy is an Australopithecus africanus, this is the species before that, but still Australopithecines kind of, they're upright walking. They may have made tools, but they certainly have brains about the size of chimpanzees, maybe slightly bigger, but they're, they're first upright walkers in a pretty interesting documentary on fuel work that's done in South Africa and the East. I think it's in the East Goldavai Gorge. Oh, wow. Otherwise, cool. yeah, my other recommendation is it's a book. It's called Identity of Archaeology. Essentially, something you use in my dissertation research, looking at how other people, again, focus on uh, identity within archaeology and how we might view material remains to interpret identities of the past. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And one of the things that came up in this conversation that I had never considered before, but I should have because, you know, within history, we have social historians, we have political historians, military historians, but the different subfields within archaeology. So the article that I just referenced referred to um, the archaeologist as a archaeobotanist. Oh, yep. Which Uh I never knew such a term existed, but if I would have gone back to my childhood and thought about Jurassic Park, Dr. What was her name? Dr. Sattler oh, was yes, a paleobotanist. Right. So obviously <laughs> these subfields exist, not to bring everything back to movies, but I do that. So um, <laughs> so these, these subfields exist and they're things that, you know, you never think about the specializations within, the, within other fields mm-hmm. sometimes, but um, just how it breaks down in all the subfields I find fascinating. Uh, I was I was reading through a book, which um, I'm not going to describe right now, but the book mentioned kind of this thing in passing at the end, which just seemed utterly fascinating to me. It's a, it's a, The book itself is on environmental history, which is one of my specialties in, in, in history, but it mentions that one of the developments among environmental studies and environmental historians and all of that is to start talking about nature, but in an urban setting because we always tend to think about environmentalism and wilderness and outside of urban settings and all of that. But of course, now that we have, you know, there's cities all over the place and human habitation affects broad swaths. I mean, pretty much all of the landscape of the world pretty much at this point has been touched by human hands. So the concept of wilderness is kind of troublesome in in general. But uh, when it comes to like urban studies, this passage in this book got me doing more digging in other research, in other websites and all of that, because it's talking about how we have started studying coyotes. And coyotes, as it turns out, at this point, the population of coyotes in cities is just about equal to or even maybe even greater than the population of coyotes that live outside of cities. And so people that are studying coyotes now are starting to study them in urban areas to figure out how they interact with, you know, urban infrastructure and all of that. And they have found that this is the one tidbit that just fascinated me. They would set up, you know, they would look at red light cameras just to see what what type of natural things happen at night. And they found that coyotes have learned to, when they get to a major street, they stop and they wait for the crossing light to turn on, the little the little green walk symbol to turn on, and then they cross the street <laughs> because they've learned that it's dangerous to to cross the street when that light is not on. And so the animals have started to basically accommodate a lot of our urban infrastructures and all of that. And so I did a little bit more digging, and they've, been, they've found a whole bunch of other ways that they do this. They've they live in, as you can imagine, they lived in like you know burned out buildings and stuff. But they've also started to learn to obey some of the rules of the road, just like people have in order to survive. So that's just that, that little tidbit seemed really cool to me. That's awesome. You should actually come to San Francisco if you want to study that further, because we've had a huge influx of coyotes over the past few years that if there are pictures and videos of them coming across the Golden Gate Bridge, they live throughout Golden Gate Park. Actually, um, there are some that live in the park that's only about three blocks away from where I live. And when we were walking on a trail one time, we saw one just sunning itself on the golf course that's in that park. So that's awesome. Yeah, but it's it's become a huge problem. We were in Golden Gate Park with a group of friends, and we were grilling at one of the, the designated areas, and we heard a pack of coyotes howling not too far away, which uh, didn't make the group feel all that safe. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, that's 
the fact that people are now i mean it doesn't make it doesn't surprise me that people are studying their their habits and patterns within cities but the fact that that's becoming a dominant experience for coyotes not only here in the bay area but elsewhere is really interesting an anthropologist would hear that and say that the coyotes have culture right because they have learned mm -hmm. about this thing and they've probably <laughs> taught it to their offspring yeah they've passed it on to other coyotes yeah, right so learn yeah. behavior yeah culture <laughs> Holding them back when they get to the uh, the red light and teaching them to stop and wait. <laughs> you can just you see one of them reaching out and grabbing the other one by the shoulder. Now, exactly. now, wait a minute. Like, what is it? The mom arm in the in the car when <laughs> right. I'm on the brakes, like the arm just goes out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I can't even teach my dog to wait at a red light, but these coyotes <laughs> seem to know what they're doing. So, well, your dog hasn't That's learned funny. it the hard way yet. I he can't learn it the hard way. <laughs> yeah, three pounds is easy to to break. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today, Liz. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. This was great. Definitely. It's much appreciated. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. Follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you like. We can be followed pretty much anywhere you want. For James Fennessy and Liz Spot, I am Rob Denning. Hasta la vista.